So I'm 32 years old, and I have four kids. Uh, when I was 30, I had four kids. Uh, Marcy was actually a month shy of her 30th birthday when we had our youngest. And in today's culture, this often gets a startled reaction. If, perhaps if you didn't know me and I said, I'm 32 and I had four kids, you'd be like, wow. Uh, after Claris, I was driving Owen Strand back to the airport, humble brag, and about halfway there, he said, so, you have any kids? I said, yeah, I've got four sons. He said, whoa, I mean, sorry, dude, uh, that's great. Uh, in which I said, yeah, I get that a lot, man, no problem. Uh, and I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that I just kind of look 25, so it's kind of startling that I would have four kids. So I'm actually really welcoming of the three or four gray hairs that are coming in here. Bring them on. I, maybe people will start taking me seriously. But I actually don't feel that old. Uh, and I'm not. 32 is not old. Uh, as a relief to most of you, yes. Uh, but my guess is that most of you don't feel old, right? When you were nine, someone in high school was about the oldest and maturest, just coolest person that you could imagine, right? Uh, and when you were in high school, the college kids were so cool and old, right? And now, of course, to me, high school and college kids are exactly that. They're kids. Sorry, kids. Uh, but just like you 50 and 60-year-olds think of me as a kid, and that's okay. Uh, but every stage of life that is ahead of you just kind of feels old, and then when you actually get to that older stage of life, you don't actually feel that old. It's just kind of weird that the first, I don't know, 12 to 18 years of your life, your childhood years, seem so long, don't they? Don't you just think back on your childhood? It seems like this extraordinarily long period of your life. So much was happening. You remember so many changes in your life, and it just feels like a long time. But then somewhere around 22 or 25, you just kind of became the person that you are now. And then time just flies by. It's kind of all the same. So I was so different as a sixth grader than I was as a kindergartner. And I was so different as a senior in high school than I was as a sixth grader. And I was so much different as a 23-year-old than I was as a high school senior. But now at 32, I don't feel that different than when I was at 23. Sure, I've, ma I've matured in a lot of ways, but I think we largely arrive at the person we're going to be around, I don't know, somewhere in our early to mid-20s. Our political opinions are formed or perhaps even just cemented during those times. Our vocational aspirations, many of our desires for life uh, are formed or cemented. Our worldview, how we see the world likely won't change a whole lot after your mid-20s or so. The life we have just becomes our life. So we seem to be, by our mid-20s or so, just to be a product of a, a series of past experiences, of beliefs, of disappointments and failures. Well, while that might be true, that in nearly every aspect of our life, we kind of just evolve into who we are, Jesus is going to say in John 3 that that is not true for spiritual life. You don't just evolve into spiritual life. So in one of the most famous chapters of the Bible, we'll try to answer three questions that Jesus works through with Nicodemus. 
What kind of life do we need? How do we get it? And why do we get it? That is, why should we receive that kind of life in the first place? So what kind of life do we need according to Jesus? Let's just read these first eight verses together in John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Many have suggested that he comes to Jesus by night because he's afraid of approaching Jesus in the day with this kind of a question. We're not exactly why Nicodemus does come when he does, but what we do know is how John uses darkness or night. In every other instance in John, either in this gospel or certainly in his letter, 1 John, he uses darkness for moral or spiritual darkness. So I love what D.A. Carson says here, doubtless Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. Here's a guy, a ruler of the Jews, who is in utter darkness, as Jesus is going to seemingly and incredulously point out to him. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he appears to give Jesus one of those notorious sports reporter questions of talk about... So he says, you know, talk about, like sports reporters will do, talk about how you were feeling at the end of the game when you knew that you were going to win. Uh, And so he comes with what appears to be a question, but then he doesn't ever ask it, does he? He says, we know that you're a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Nicodemus is actually lucky that Jesus isn't the Spurs coach, Greg Popovich. He's like, wait, is that a question? Uh, Would you like me to just start talking? Uh, And that's exactly what Jesus does. He just starts talking. But it really appears that Jesus really yanks the wheel really hard in an opposite direction that we were expecting. It doesn't sound like Jesus even heard what Nicodemus came to talk about. Nicodemus says, we know you come from God. But then Jesus doesn't say, truly, truly. Yep, that's right. He says, truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what's going on? Why does he respond to Nicodemus in this way? Behind Nicodemus's talk about question is Nicodemus's own implication that he, Nicodemus, can look at Jesus, look at the evidence of Jesus's miracles, and see who he is see that Jesus is from God. He's a teacher from God, but perhaps what might be behind his question is, are you something more? But Jesus is going to jump right in and emphatically deny that no one can see 
the kingdom of God. No one can see me rightly. No one can see the kingdom unless he's born again. We read this phrase, born again, and kind of just blow by it, right? When I read this for us, we didn't even think twice about it. This is a phrase we know so well. It's really familiar, but for Nicodemus, it seems to be a, yeah, but wait, wait, what? What did you just say? The phrase is, the phrase is really loaded in the, in the Greek. It, it carries a double meaning, and it's kind of difficult to translate. It can literally mean to be born a second time, or it can, be me, it can mean to be born from above. Now, Nicodemus seems to interpret what Jesus is saying in the first translation. He's choosing to hear the commonly understood second birth. How can one literally be born again? So we ask, wait a minute, how can an old man be born again? I can't re-enter my mother's womb and go through that ordeal again. So what are you talking about? He seems to imply that what we think of ourselves is true, that once we reach adulthood, the life we have is just ours. We seem to be just a product of a series of past experiences, beliefs, disappointments, and failures. We kind of just evolved into who we are. So this perhaps older man, Nicodemus, is saying, how can that be? How can I not be who I've become? Old dogs do not learn new tricks, seems to be behind Nicodemus's questioning. But Jesus says, yes, that's exactly my point. There is no evolution into real spiritual life. Life in the kingdom is not an arrived understanding of the world in your experience, of how you view the world in yourself. That's not life in the kingdom. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus is still thinking like the old days, where if you were born into a family, you were born into the covenant people of God. If you happen to have Jewish parents, you were a Jew, and therefore you were a part of God's covenant people. But Jesus is saying there's something new here. There's something beginning anew here. It's not your first birth, who your parents are, that makes you God's people. It's your second birth into a new covenant that makes you God's covenant people. And how do we know that Jesus is talking about new covenant stuff here? Am I just making this up? Because of the whole water and spirit language, which I don't think is referring to baptism. Uh, unless you're baptized, you can't enter the kingdom, as some interpret this verse. I think this is new covenant language that the prophets had looked toward, like Ezekiel, who looked toward the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. What Jesus is about to inaugurate and begin is a new covenant, a covenant of peace, whereby people are finally alive to God, alive spiritually. Perhaps even this is what John has in mind in John chapter 1, where he talks about 
people becoming sons of God. Perhaps that's some new birth language as well. The Spirit does not come and go into a select few kings and priests as he did in the old days, but now the Spirit comes fully and seals all of God's covenant people. The same new covenant where God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And no longer, verse 34 of, of Jeremiah 31, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the new covenant, God's people are those who receive the Spirit. There will no longer be a category of a covenant person of God who does not have first saving faith in God and therefore will need to be taught how to have their sins forgiven, as Jeremiah is saying. He's not saying in this new covenant, uh, everyone will be saved and no one will need to understand and be taught the gospel. No, the people who are in covenant with God will already know and understand how their sins are forgiven. In the new covenant, all people who are in covenant with God already have the Spirit. Which is why in verse 6 of John 3, Jesus goes on to say, For that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is of the Spirit. Elephants give birth to elephants. Cats give birth to cats. Elephants do not give birth to cats. Like begets like. All humans who are in Adam, dead in their trespasses, do not give birth to people who are spiritually alive. Even Christians who are presently alive in Christ do not give birth to spiritually alive humans. Just watch a baby for two minutes and you understand Spiritual life only comes from above. It comes not in a first birth of physical life, but in a second of spiritual life. The Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Life like begets like. So now, should we say that there's no benefit to having Christian parents? Or there's no benefit to be, being born in a Christian family? Uh, Growing up in the church? No. You should, it's a blessing and a gift from God to be born into a Christian family where there is ready and ever-present access to the gospel. This is a good thing. But unless God brings a second birth, those children are dead in their trespasses and are outside of covenant with Christ. So I've heard Matt Chandler say that the goal of parenting should be to pile as much kindling around our children as possible. We take them to church each week, a little bit of kindling. We read the Bible with them. We talk about the scriptures with them in our cars and at the dinner table. More kindling, more kindling. We pray for them incessantly, a lot of kindling. We do all of this, but it's just kindling. We are hopefully piling the kindling up to here, but it's just kindling. And we do all of this with the hopes that God will one day ignite them can he ignite someone with very little kindling? Yes. Does he never ignite some who are up to here in kindling? Yes, he does. But this is what Jesus is saying in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, 
And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We can't see or explain how or why the Spirit moves and works, but its effects are unmistakable. Life. Spiritual life. So if you have not received the second birth from above, you are not in covenant with God. You are not at peace with God. If you have not been born again, you are at odds with God in your rebellion against him. Kevin DeYoung says, make no mistake, to be at peace with your sin is to be at war with God. And that's right. And that includes nice and polite church people who know their Bibles and recognize Jesus as being sent from God as Nicodemus did. You must receive his life. You must be born again. Life apart from Christ is actually not life at all. But life apart from Christ is only awaiting death and condemnation for our rebellion. It would be far better to have never been born at all than to have never been born again. So if this is the kind of life we need, and Jesus is pretty clear that we need this kind of life, how do we get it? Let's read these next six verses. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus doesn't get it. For his entire life, he's likely been teaching his kinsmen that their heritage is the starting point for life in the kingdom of God. Past that, they should keep themselves separate from the world. They should know the law, understand it, be diligent to keep all of it. And there would be many conditions for entrance into the kingdom of God, but then Jesus just throws a wrench into the engine of Nicodemus's theological understanding. But Nicodemus is no different than any or any of us or any other human in history. One theologian says, it is the perennial heresy of the human race to think that by our own efforts we can fit ourselves for the kingdom of God. Nicodemus just doesn't get it. While he understands so much of what we'd call the Old Testament, he missed completely the point of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, numerous other places where we foresee the depth and the scope of the coming new covenant. He thinks, like we do, that we can make ourselves fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus seems to just be saying, Nicodemus, you are missing the fundamental nature of God's saving work. The way in which God will finally and fully institute a new covenant of peace through spiritual re rebirth, you've missed it. And if you can't even understand that, I'm not gonna waste my time in telling you more about the kingdom of God, where I'm from, and what it's like. Verse 13, Jesus is saying, 
No one actually has the authority to speak about heaven and the kingdom of God unless you've actually been there. And since no one from earth actually goes to heaven and comes back, Christian publishers and filmmakers, uh, the only person Jesus is saying that you should actually trust about heaven is someone who originates from there. You're looking at him. Since I am from heaven, Jesus says, the place of eternal life, let me go ahead and tell you how to get there, how to receive this second birth, this life from above. Here's how. Here's how you receive new birth. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you're new to the Bible, uh, you may now be more dumbstruck than Nicodemus. What? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? That's just like that. That's how you get new life, Nicodemus. Well, this is weird. Uh, But Jesus is referring to the story in Numbers 21 when the people are wandering in the wilderness wildly accusing God of evil They're worshiping idols all over the place. So God sends a plague of venomous snakes into the camp as judgment, and people are dying all over the place. God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, the symbol of curse, the the symbol of judgment, both in this story in Numbers 21 and throughout the whole of the Bible, to put that symbol of the curse up onto a pole. And the people are to fix their eyes on this symbol of curse and judgment, and to not have their gaze distracted by what's going on around them. Though sin, though death, though curse be all around them, those who look in faith to the serpent who is lifted up above the people will find life, will have it. So Jesus says, how do you get spiritual life? The second birth from above? Yeah, pretty much just like that. If the Father is going to give spiritual and eternal life through a new covenant of peace, he must have a place to pour out his just judgment against the infinite sin of rebels. Only if it's going to be an eternal covenant of peace, that receptor of the judgment, the place where the judgment finds its end, that thing, that receptor must be something or someone big enough or eternal enough to receive it finally and fully. Not like, not like the credit card payments of bronze serpents and cows and goats and sheep that must be continually renewed each time there is new sin and annually deferring payment and deferring payment and deferring payment waiting for the final full balance to be paid. No, it must be something more than that. The son of man himself, the the Daniel 7 ruler who has everlasting dominion over the entire universe, that son of man must be lifted up and gazed upon as the serpent in the wilderness. Gazed upon as the fountain of salvation flowing out to those who would look on him, who would trust him. Just as Israel in the wilderness, though 
sin, though death, though curse and judgment be all around them, those who look in faith to the Son of Man who is lifted up above the people will have new life, a second birth. And Jesus is, of course, telling Nicodemus of how he himself will soon be lifted up on the cross, the place and symbol of curse and judgment. But as Trent showed us on Good Friday from John 12, in John's gospel, lifted up always carries a double meaning. Lifted up on the cross. Jesus will literally be lifted up above the ground on the cross. But his being lifted up on the cross is how he becomes high and lifted up, exalted. It's how he receives the eternal dominion of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. His being lifted up on the cross is how he will then once again ascend very high and lifted up into heaven as God and Savior. Lifted up on the cross, yes, but lifted up. And so we gaze at the cross. This is how Jesus is high and exalted as God and Savior. We look and behold the glory of God through Christ where sorrow and love flow mingled down. We trust in him and him alone to bear the wrath of God against our sin and give us life, birth. So what kind of life do we need? We, we need spiritual life from above. A second birth, a new heart that is alive to God, received by the Spirit that we might be sons and daughters of God. But how do we get that life? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated high and lifted up at the right hand of the throne of God. But Jesus isn't satisfied to just stop there. He's got to tell Nicodemus, and us for that matter, why God would go to such lengths to bring all this about in the first place. Why would God do all this? Why should we receive this kind of life? Why do we get it? Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Because of the immensity of God's love, he sent his son. In other words, Jesus is being sent by the Father to be lifted up is a result of, it's a consequence of God's great love. In other, other words, 
God doesn't send Jesus and God doesn't forgive the sin of sinners begrudgingly. Jesus didn't have to talk angry old God the Father into just let me go, just let me go. I want to save him. He's like, oh, I'd really rather be angry, but okay. No, the love of God is what sends Jesus. Jesus is sent by the Father and he is sent by the love of the Father. The salvation which flows from the fountain of the cross is sourced by the love of God. But again, Jesus is Surely shocking Nicodemus even more here. It's not just physical birth, but it's spiritual birth. It's not just an old covenant, but a new one. It's not just a bronze serpent, but the son of man lifted up. And it's not just Israel. It's the world. Nicodemus and his kinsmen would not be surprised that God loved them, that God loved Israel, but the world? Really? Those people who have no knowledge or certainly no love or right worship for you, God, how can this be? God has sent his son to give life and to bring people into covenant from all parts of the world, Jesus is saying. Carson says, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big, and it includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That's what's surprising about God's love for the world, which is exactly how John always uses the word, world. As we see in the rest of this chapter, elsewhere in this gospel and in 1 John, the world does not and cannot love God. And yet this is the world that Jesus walks into because of the love of God. It isn't a morally neutral world that Jesus steps into. And this world is just waiting to see and experience Jesus and then either receive or reject him. No, Jesus is saying here that it is an already condemned world because the world loves the darkness more than the light because their works are evil. So Jesus doesn't show up as a judge to announce and read uh, the imminent capital punishment that is coming as a result of the hearing. Now that sentence has already been read in Genesis 3. The world already stands condemned. Jesus doesn't need to come and condemn it again. Jesus shows up to save those who would believe in him. To bring condemned and dead people to life to trade their sentence of capital punishment for his own. For those who trust in his life of light, for those who depend on the fountain of salvation through his death, for those who bank their entire existence on an empty tomb, so that through his resurrection, second birth, we might be united with him in second birth. You must be born again. So have you been? Does your life make sense apart from the empty tomb? Like if Jesus was still in the ground, other than what you do perhaps on an hour on Sunday morning and maybe once a month here on Wednesday, does your life make sense 
if Jesus is raised from the dead? Apart from his being raised from the dead, are you in a covenant of peace with God, having your sins forgiven because what Jesus has done for you You're not just the sum of however many years of experiences and hopes and beliefs and disappointments and failures. God can actually give you new and radically transformed life by the power of his spirit. So do you know and rest in him and the love of God which sent Jesus on our behalf? If not, or if you have questions, I'm not sure, would you please come find me after this service or just grab the shoulder of any Christian in this room? Talk to them about that. Hear the voice of Jesus to you, the living and active word of Christ spoken to you tonight. You must be born again. What you need most in your life is to receive life from above. It would be far better to have never been born at all than to have never been born again. But if you have, if you have been born again, if you have this spiritual life from above, if you've known and trusted in Christ for decades perhaps, have you been tempted toward boredom? for the past 35 minutes or so? It might be my fault, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know this passage really well. This is like the first thing I learned on the felt board. I got it. I've heard the gospel so many times. Why can't we move on to more important things? Can I just challenge you that if the love of God, if the saving gospel of Christ bores you, that you're tempted to want something a little bit more than that. It's kind of, yeah, I got that. Can we move on from the gospel? Can I challenge you that you don't quite grasp the depth of your sin? You don't comprehend the fullness of the work of Christ and his cross. If you've been bored by the gospel in the past 35 minutes or so, then I think it's probably likely that you did not sing in astonishment, oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong that he would save someone like me. We don't move on from the gospel. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Unbelievable. Do you, the unbelievableness, if that's a word, of that simple state that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, it tells me so. We need reminding of the grandeur of the gospel. I'm I'm pretty sure he didn't actually say it, but Luther is commonly attributed with saying, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And while Luther probably didn't say it, he should have. Uh, it's real good. It's true. Experientially, is it not true? We need to be reminded of the gospel every day because we forget it every day. We are forgetful people who need reminding. We need regular 
reminding of the simplest of truth, the simplicity yet enormity of the saving gospel of Christ. We will never move on from the gospel because there is no more important thing 